Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 20. Uh, this morning we're going to have a short section, verses 19 through 23. It's the beginning of a new series that's called uh, The Resurrected Life. And we're looking at what Jesus did after His resurrection and before His ascension. What can we learn from Jesus' actions and conversations within those 40 days. What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about God's salvation? And what does it tell us about what we can look forward to uh, in the future? Have you ever had someone say to you, let me show you my scar? Now this can be a little off-putting if you don't know where the scar is or what exactly they're about to show you. Um, but it does make sense that they would, a person would want to share a scar because every scar tells a story. When my oldest daughter was a sophomore in high school, she played on the rugby team, which was a, a terrifying thing for me as her father. Uh, my beautiful feminine daughter out uh, tackling other uh, young ladies at full speed, no pads, no headgear, nothing. Uh, again, it was a very violent uh, sport. In some ways, it, this rugby team, this girl's rugby team made the boys' football team look like a bunch of wimps. Um, it was not hard, though, to get into. It was very intense. It was very active. In fact, I found myself even yelling things that I didn't expect. Uh, one day, uh, I, my daughter was chasing this girl. I said, bring her down. Destroy her. I thought, this is not a very, a very pastoral uh, thing to say. Um, but my daughter tracked down a girl from behind who was some 10 yards ahead, jumped on her back, and brought her to the ground uh, with this, all the force of a Lawrence uh, Taylor tackle. The only problem was... When she brought down this other young lady, she kind of turned, and this girl fell on her and shattered her collarbone, which meant the end of her rugby career. She had to have surgery. Uh, she had to have a plate put in. And now she still bears the scar, uh, which tells the story of that rugby match. Every scar tells a story. Well, when Jesus rose from the dead, he still had the scars from his wounds on the cross. The scars from the wounds that he suffered on Good Friday were still there on Easter, and they'll never fade away. The scars in Jesus' hands, feet, and side will always be visible. And yes, they tell the story of his sacrifice. They tell the story of his love. It's a story we're going to read about this morning. Uh, John chapter 19, 20, rather, verses 19 uh, and 20. Uh, let me begin uh, by reading just those two verses. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. All right, so it's Resurrection Sunday and Later in the evening, after Jesus had his encounter with Mary Magdalene at the tomb, uh, we don't know what Jesus has been doing throughout the day. We do know that he made the trip to Emmaus, uh, and he came back. This was a, a seven-mile uh, trip, roughly, so um, he's definitely uh, gotten his steps in. Uh, meanwhile, the disciples have locked, their, locked themselves in a room in Jerusalem. Not all the disciples, actually. Judas uh, was dead at this point. Uh, Thomas was somewhere else. We, we don't know where he was. Um, so we're talking really about the ten plus a few others. We know there were a few others there as well. And they're in a locked room, John says, because of their fear of the Jews. Now the, the Jewish people had, uh, 
had seen to it that uh, the disciples' Lord was crucified. And so, of course, the disciples are concerned themselves about their own fate. But we're not sure just how credible that excuse was, really. At this point, the Jewish leaders are convinced that Jesus has dead, is dead. There's really no indication that there's a group of people who are out looking for the disciples. There's, there's no indication that there's this search going on. So why would it be that the disciples would be locked into a room? Well, sure, there was some concern, I'm sure, about the Jews, the Jewish people. Would they seek to find Jesus' followers? But I wonder if something else was actually going on. I wonder if, along with the fear of the Jews, there was a deeper fear that the disciples had, and it was the fear of running into Jesus. After all, when Mary told the disciples early that same morning that she had seen Jesus, the disciples made no effort, it seems, to go find him. They didn't try to track him down. And I think the reason is, fresh in their minds, is their collective abandonment at Jesus of Jesus at his arrest. Peter, of course, remembers vividly his denial of Jesus. It's, it's fresh on his mind. Uh, Judas's guilt was so bad that he hanged himself. I think the disciples were probably most afraid of running into Jesus. What would he say to them if they cross paths again? How would he respond? Would he be angry with them? Would he be bitter? Would he have an axe to grind, so to speak? Would he be out for revenge? The disciples may be thinking, if we just stay locked up in this room, then we can keep the past behind us and we can keep Jesus away from us. But they couldn't keep Jesus out, of course. Jesus wasn't hampered by the locked doors. He walked in the room and appeared in the middle of them. Now, we'll talk more about Jesus' resurrected body uh, next week. And uh, we don't know a lot about it, but there's some that we can uh, glean from these descriptions. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, I want to consider this greeting. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. It seems like such a common and simple greeting. And in a way, it was a very common greeting. It was a, it was a normal way for people to introduce or to welcome one another in Hebrew. But here it has incredible significance. This Hebrew phrase, shalom aleichem, peace be yours, coming from Jesus at this moment is actually a declaration of his forgiveness, his blessing, his favor, his mercy. Given the fact that they had abandoned Jesus, the disciples that is, at Jesus' arrest, they were probably expecting, I'm sure, a rebuke from Jesus. Where were you guys? Why did you leave me alone? Where did you run off to? One theologian writes, Thus the first words of the risen Jesus and of his mission to his gathered disciples significantly are not a command, but a gift. There is no preliminary reminder of the disciples' failure to support him in his crisis, no call for repentance or even for faith. There is sheer grace. From the beginning of John's gospel, John tells us about this coming one, Jesus, and he would say about him, for uh, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And now at the end of John's gospel, we see Jesus demonstrate that grace in his fullness in his glorified body. It reminds me really of another story in the Gospels, the story of the prodigal son, not so much of the younger brother, but actually the older brother, the one who stood self-righteously by while the younger brother came home repentant, uh, groveling as it were. Here the disciples have heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus has risen from the dead 
and they're scared to death, again, probably of Jesus. Hence, they're not searching for him. They're holed up in a locked room. And yet, when he does come in, much like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, even to the self-righteous son, right, Jesus doesn't scold, but he reiterates his love. Peace be yours, he says. And after the greeting, Jesus showed them his hands, his side. After he extends his peace to them verbally, he says to them, in essence, now let me show you why you can have peace. Let me show you why you can be confident about peace. I am really here. It's really me. I really did rise from the dead. And how do the disciples respond? The last part of verse 20, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Luke tells us in his gospel that they were initially terrified. Jesus comes in and he's among them and they think they've seen a ghost. They're they're that scared. There's a spirit among them, they think. But after that repeated greeting, peace to you, and the impression of the marks in his hands and side, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Actually, it was more than just glad. The Greek word that John uses here is a word which means they were filled with joy. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the evening that he would be betrayed. He said, yeah, you're going to lament soon, and you're going to weep, and you're going to be filled with sorrow, but your sorrow would turn to joy. And indeed, it has at this moment. Now, here's why, and this is our first point this morning. The bodily resurrection of Jesus provides tangible, empirical, flesh and blood evidence of the forgiveness of sins. In, the, in an instant, their guilt and shame, all of that was gone. Now think, it's very much like what we see with Adam and Eve when they rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. They want to be free from God's presence, so they try to hide from God. And yet God goes after them, even says, where are you? He knows where they are already. But he's showing his pursuing nature. And here, the disciples have rebelled. They, they've abandoned Jesus. They've, they've left him for dead, as it were. And so, yeah, they're afraid of seeing him again. But Jesus comes and with great tenderness, he shows them the evidence of their forgiveness. And it is, in fact, his glorified, resurrected body. I read somewhere recently that psychologists say that a significant portion of sick people in hospitals are there because they have a a deep sense of unforgiven guilt. And so while there may be a physical ailment, it's complicated by or exacerbated by the sense of unforgiven guilt. We've all done things that we regret. We all do things that we're ashamed of. We have sinned, not just in our distant past, but even now. We continue to sin and rebel against God. But if you are in Christ this morning, you stand forgiven, even now. As we've seen over the last two weeks, it was Jesus' blood on the cross that covered our sin. But God raised Jesus from the dead, from death, because his sacrifice on the cross was completely sufficient for our sins. Because he has been raised, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because he has been raised, we are free from the curse and the rule of sin. We really are forgiven. Now look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Again, Jesus calms their fears 
and allays their reservations. Peace be with you, he says again as a way to comfort them. And then he relays the words that he said to them before he was killed. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Now what's so fascinating to me about what Jesus does after the resurrection is really maybe what he doesn't do. He doesn't build a stage. He doesn't construct a platform on which to sort of uh, go on this grand reunion tour. He doesn't, make, he doesn't even make a big speech at all. He makes breakfast for his friends. He hung out and talked, continued to invest in the people he loved, encouraging them, and then he sent them on mission. The week before Easter, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, and I said that the three most important words that Jesus ever said were these, it is finished. Just one Greek word, to telestai. And the reason I made that point and went on to say it's the, that word serves as the foundation for every Christian sermon going forward is because that word indicates that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was enough. He fully accomplished the work that he came to do. He brought us to God. There's nothing left for us to do, period, as it relates to our justification. Any attempts to save ourselves or to contribute to God's saving work, that just muddies up the whole thing. Praise God, we can rest. We don't have to strive for God's approval. We don't have to labor for everyone else's approval. But resting in Christ doesn't mean inactivity. When we say there's nothing left to do in terms of our salvation, it doesn't mean that there's nothing left to do in terms of kingdom work. Even though we're safe in the arms of God, totally forgiven for all of our past, present, and future sins, fully justified in the eyes of God, there's still something we're called to do, and that is, namely, to reach the world with the good news of the forgiveness in Christ that we've received. Notice what Jesus does. It's the same approach approach he takes, he always takes. Before he commands, he gives. He gives us everything we need in him, and then he commissions us with the task, introduce the world to me. Here's our second point this morning. The rhythm of the risen Jesus remains the same then and now. He shepherds and sends. He shepherds and sends. Nothing has changed. He's still sending people even today. Right at this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, protecting and overseeing His church. He's interceding for His people. He's praying for them, pouring out His grace and His power on them, and then He is sending them on mission. Again, nothing has changed. Upon first returning, Jesus met with his disciples. He let them know that they were loved. He demonstrated his forgiveness. He showed them that nothing, not even their own fear or shame, could keep them apart from him. And then he sent them out as part of a multiplying movement. The Father sends Jesus. Jesus sends the ten plus. The ten plus would go reach more and they would be sent as well. Jesus knew that the only way to reach the world with the good news of forgiveness, reconciliation to God, was to launch a multiplying movement that would continue to expand in this ever-enlarging circumference until the multitudes of the earth had heard the gospel. Now, this is very important, and I want to camp out here for just a few minutes. Jesus' strategy for global evangelization was multiplication of, 
not addition. Multiplication versus addition. One sends one, who sends ten, who sends a hundred, and so on and it goes. Now, if you've taken the class perspectives on the World Christian Movement that we offered here at Cabshaw in Lesson 4, we talk about this, this, the difference between multiplication and addition, but because there are only 20 or 25 people from our church in that class, it certainly is worth uh, repeating and reviewing. What does this mean for us? Now, let's con- contrast multiplication versus addition in terms of an approach to mission. So, first of all, we talk about addition versus multiplication. Addition focuses on decisions. Multiplication focuses on discipleship. Getting people to make a decision is easy. You, can just, you just coerce, you manipulate, you, you, you keep going with your plea until someone is, is forced into raising their hand or, or, or so-called making a decision. Making disciples, though, is much, much harder and, in fact, can only be done by God's Spirit. Discipleship, in discipleship, we're actually helping people to treasure Jesus, trust in His finished work, grow in the gospel, embrace the believing community, become part of a church, and then go out themselves. The second difference is when it comes to addition and multiplication is addition focuses on behavior. Multiplication focuses on the development of character. Behavior can be changed in a moment. But it doesn't necessarily mean that a person's heart has changed. Character is produced over the long haul, and it flows out of the heart. Character is developed by obedience rooted in faith, obedience motivated by faith. It's what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. And we're trying to make disciples. We wanted to develop character, not just help people change what they do. They used to do this, now they don't, but really to form and develop character. Another difference is with addition, there's a focus on top-down teaching, but with with multiplication, it's teaching by modeling. Now, what I mean by that, top-down teaching, is the, 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 the preacher, the pastor, is kind of the expert, and he stands up on Sunday morning, and he tells everybody else what they're supposed to be doing, but he's very divorced from the community. There's no vulnerability. There's no admission of his own struggles. In some cases, he's the celebrity. He's the only one who can do it right. He's the only one who has the ability. Well, with teaching by modeling, the pastors, plural, they teach and they lead, but they're involved in the congregation, sharing not just information, but their own lives as well. The leaders know they're not perfect, and their teaching reflects that level of awareness and humility And so biblical principles and theological understanding, these things are not imparted by a guru who has it all figured out, but taught and modeled and learned by the congregation. And therefore, the congregation is encouraged and motivated and mobilized. In ancient Greece, some 300 years before Jesus was born, there was tremendous value placed on public speaking or or oration. People would debate and discuss, and if a person was a really good speaker, he was deeply respected and sometimes even responded to with awe, like, this person is amazing. Well, there were two orators in the mid-300s B.C. who were very well known, and they were, you might even say they were kind of verbal sparring partners. One was Eschines, and the other was Demosthenes. Eschines had such a beautiful way with words that people marveled at every turn of phrase. 
He was the uh, son of, a, of an elementary school teacher who made him focus on words with great precision. Again, the way that he spoke was nearly awe-inspiring. He was much, uh, he was much uh, highly regarded among the people. Now, he was, uh, had a contemporary by the name of Demosthenes who was uh, much more ordinary. Now, he worked at his craft as well, but he didn't have these incredible turns of phrases. But because of his involvement with the people, because Demosthenes was involved with the people who came to know him and love him, there was a saying back then that started to circulate. circulate. When Eschines speaks, they say, oh, how well he speaks. But when Demosthenes speaks, they say, let us march. One speaker provoked adoration. Another speaker provoked action. And such is the case with this, this model, the teaching by modeling, where the teachers, the pastors, the elders are deeply involved in the congregation. They're living life together rather than just a talking head who gets up and speaks and is the so-called expert. Now, it's not as though, of course, pastors and leaders shouldn't be prepared and well-studied and educated. They should, but again, they're, they're, they're also learners. They're also students sharing their lives with the people they lead. Another difference between addition and multiplication is addition focuses on events, gathering people together, uh, where multiplication focuses on small groups, living life together. That leads to the next one, gathering versus sending. Uh, the, the addition says we've got to bring people together, get as many people into the building as we can, where multiplication is about sending people, incarnational ministry, living where people happen to be, loving them as image bearers of God and sharing Christ with them. With the addition uh, mindset, church is regarded as for the unbeliever. And so everything that goes on on Sunday morning is designed for the unbeliever. It's high production. It's everything focuses on what will make the unbeliever feel comfortable. But with multiplication, there's an understanding that church is actually, by definition, a group of believers. And so what happens on Sunday is for the believer. With the addition approach, there's a colonial mindset, which means one person goes to an area and sort of camps out, and they're the experts, and they do all the ministry. With multiplication, there's the training of nationals, recognizing that, that Indians in India and Africans in Africa and uh, Ethiopians in Ethiopia and, and uh, Germans in Germany, they are much more effective at reaching people in their uh, areas than we can be. Now, these are just a few of the differences. Um, and not only does that philosophy, is it a very different ph- philosophical approach, but also a huge shift in how success is measured. There, the indicators of success are different with addition than multiplication. And with a nod to Jared Wilson, who writes on this in one of his books, the indicators of success with addition are this, the numbers of decisions, growth in attendance, growth in giving. Now, these th- just going down the list, these, these are not necessarily bad things, but it doesn't necessarily indicate success. I was at a church uh, a few years ago where every December, from my very first year there, every December... Uh, someone in the church would give a $100,000 year-end gift. And this was a person who wasn't plugged into any small groups, only showed up during the month of December, and, and really, really didn't know if this person was even a believer. But this caused a great increase, naturally, in giving 
But it didn't necessarily mean we were making any better disciples. In fact, at one point this person insisted on getting his way in a certain area. And when I said this is not the direction we're going to go, he left the church and took with him his annual $100,000 gift. It doesn't necessarily mean because giving has increased that more disciples are being made. The expansion of the campus, the number of ministries being offered, emotional experiences. If people come and they're just emotionally engaged and they have this great high, that means success. That's, that's an addition uh, mindset. With multiplication, the indicators of success are very different. There's a growing esteem for Jesus, a discernible spirit of repentance. You want to know if a church is growing spiritually Do you see people, more people who are repentant, people who are saying more often, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. A devotion to the Word of God, an interest in theology and doctrine, an investment in one another. This is a way, are we really multiplying? Then we're investing one another, and the people we're investing in are investing in other people. An evident love for God and neighbor, neighbor. Now think about the difference in effectiveness between mission by addition versus multiplication. Let's say you do an event that brings in a thousand people to your church campus. You post banners everywhere, you give away a a 75-inch TV and a year's supply of Little Caesars pizza, and people come out. People come out, they want to see what's going on, they're they're, uh, curious about this. And let's say in that event, a hundred people come forward. Well... Decades-long studies indicate that less than 2% of those who make professions of faith at these big events, revivals, or whatever it is, actually end up persevering in the faith, getting plugged into community. They just don't show up, is what the statistics show. For over 10 years, I was at another church. We did a short-term mission trip to central Mexico, which is a very hard area spiritually. And for over 10 years, we sent a team down, a short-term team, every year to this church of about 25, and this team would put on a big uh, carnival, revival. Hundreds of people would come. Dozens of people would profess their faith in Christ. They would make a decision. But what we noticed is every year we went down, the church was exactly the same size. There's always 25 people. There were no new people there. The people who were making these so-called decisions were not getting plugged into the church. So, This approach by addition, it may gather people in a building, but it's not really making disciples who make disciples. Now, what if 10 people, and we know there are more people with Jesus there than probably just 10, but what if 10 people intentionally identify, pray for, love, and engage, and reach five people with the gospel? That's 50 people. And what if those 50 people then continue that multiplication, they reach five, that's 250. And those 250 reach 5, that's 1,250. And those 1,250 reach 5, that's 6,250. And those 6,250 reach 5, that's over 31,000 people. And those 31,000 people reach 5. Then you see how this continues to expand. This is exactly, by the way, what happened with the earliest disciples. The disciples in that room would go and reach places like North Africa and Greece and Asia, Britain, Spain, France, and parts of the Middle East. And, of course, they would continue to expand. And now we are part of that mission. If we as Christians Christians believe that the resurrection is true and that Jesus did defeat death, hell, and the grave so that ruined people, broken, sinful people can be made right with God, 
for His glory and their good, then this is the most important of all world realities that must be announced across cultures and languages and people. Now let's look at the rest of this short passage, verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, it won't surprise you, I'm sure, to hear that there's been all kinds of debate over the centuries as to what these two verses mean. Some ask, well, if Jesus is giving the the Holy Spirit to the disciples here, then what happened at Pentecost? Why did Jesus tell the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit came on them at Pentecost? Well, equally perplexing, I think, are Jesus' words on forgiving and and retaining sins. And I think we have to be quick to say, uh, with a level of humility, there's there's mystery here. I, I don't have the definitive word on what this means. Now, I've studied it, and I think I have some explanations, which I'll uh, give you in just a moment, but we have to approach this with humility. If we take into consideration the rest of Scripture, which we always have to do when we're looking at interpreting Scripture, then we see that the Spirit comes at various times and for various purposes throughout redemptive history, and we have to consider what that purpose might be in this passage. We've already seen in John's gospel this great exchange that Jesus has with Nicodemus uh, where Jesus says that the Spirit gives life. The Spirit imparts life to those who are spiritually dead, bringing them to a place of repentant faith, and then indwelling them for the rest of their lives. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you should have known this. You should have known that you need to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we know that this meeting with Jesus was not the the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit as in His indwelling presence. That happened when they put their faith in Christ. In fact, we can even say that Old Testament saints who believed in the promised Redeemer, who was seen through types and shadows, they too were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, we have to conclude that they were born again by the same Spirit who enabled them to have faith. We also want to be quick to recognize that what happened at Pentecost was unique. It was historically unique. There the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, establishing this new age. So what happened in the locker room with the disciples was not the same as that, nor was it an initial offering to the Spirit to a select few. I believe what was going on there, and there are plenty of scholars who would agree with me on this, is that What Jesus was doing was personally committing himself to the disciples in the person of the Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit, God the Son, are different persons within the triune Godhead. But to have the Spirit is tantamount to having Christ. As we've already seen in John's Gospel, by Jesus' promises, he says the Spirit serves as the presence of Christ while Christ is away. So, to break this down even further, what Jesus is saying is, this mission that I'm sending you on is going to be extremely hard. In fact, it's going to be humanly impossible. But that's okay because I'm sending you the Spirit, and indeed, I'm asking you right now to prepare yourself for Him. And He will be the one who accomplishes the task. 
Now, as for this next statement, Jesus is not giving the apostles and a few clergy members the ability to forgive sins. This is, this is an area of cont- a verse of contention between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Jesus is not saying to the apostles and a few select clergy, priests who will follow him, you have the ability to forgive sins. The Greek here appears in the passive voice, which indicates that something, someone else is doing the acting here. What do the disciples do then? Well, they are empowered to declare the forgiveness of sin when people believe in Jesus Christ. And in fact, so are we. So are all followers of Jesus, given the authority to declare the forgiveness of sins to those who believe. Again, we're not doing the forgiving, but we're saying to those who are in Christ, regardless of what sins they've committed, we're saying, yeah, you are actually forgiven. If any person is conscious of his own sin, his own rebellion, confesses and acknowledges their need for Jesus and receives Jesus, we have the authority to say to them, your sins are forgiven. It's a beautiful thing. We're not forgiving again. We are simply announcing that forgiveness has taken place. And here's what I believe Jesus is saying. This is our third point, our final point. The church is called to continue Jesus' reconciling ministry through the Spirit and under the authority of the risen Christ. And part of that reconciling ministry is helping people to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus and the fullness of forgiveness that is found in Him. The church is the vessel through which the mystery of the gospel is made known. As she scatters, the church announces to the world this message of forgiveness. There is a true and living God. He is holy. There's only one God, and we stand condemned by Him, those who have not trusted in Jesus. But all who turn to Him in faith are granted forgiveness. Now, going back to the frightened disciples who were scared to death to meet Jesus, I wonder how much, like the, how much more like the disciples we are than we realize. You know, sometimes we read the accounts of the disciples and they, they keep asking Jesus the same questions over and over. We say to ourselves, why don't they get it? And sometimes we think after they've seen all these incredible things, how could they not believe? How could they still have so many questions? Sometimes we may actually secretly think, what's the deal with these guys? But I think we may be giving ourselves too much credit. A longtime friend said to me last week, He said, it's scary how much your son is like you. He did something last week that made me think that was exactly what John would do. I said, well, really, what did he do? And he wanted to tell me something really selfish my son did that reminded him of me. I wish he had another point of comparison, but this was what reminded him of of me. And I realized, I guess my son is more like me than I realize, for better and for worse, And perhaps we're more like the disciples than we realize or even care to admit. How often do we try to lock Jesus out of the shameful areas of our lives? How often do we uh, take those particular sin tendencies or sin patterns, we, we don't want to reveal them to Jesus as if He doesn't already know? Maybe for you it's some part of your past that you've really never dealt with either horizontally with other people or vertically with the Lord. 
Maybe there's something you've done that you're especially regretful of. Maybe there's some anxiety or fear that that continues to plague you and haunt you, and you don't want to be honest with the Lord about it. Sometimes we're frightened of what Jesus might think, what Jesus might do. Sometimes we're not even honest with ourselves about what we're hiding from Jesus and why we're hiding it. Maybe the disciples weren't keeping the Jews out as much as they were keeping themselves in. And it's so easy to do when we've sinned or we've rebelled against God, we've fallen yet again to conclude that God is against us, that we're beyond forgiveness, that we cannot go to Jesus with this. But here we are in the context of this multi- Jesus launching this multiplying movement, Jesus reminding in multiple ways the power and the beauty of His forgiveness, His greeting to His disciples when surely they expected something harsh, His real physical scar-bearing body, the tangible evidence of their forgiveness, and the authority that He grants to the church. For all those who are in Christ, we can say, as I've actually said to folks, it's okay. You can breathe. You can relax. You are forgiven in Jesus. But to those who refuse to believe, who cling to their own righteousness, their own autonomy, who reject Jesus, we can actually say, you are under God's wrath. You are under God's curse. You are not forgiven. But if you turn to Jesus even now, you will be forgiven of all your sins. And not just forgiven, which is an incredible thing, but you will have all of eternity to look forward to, spending with, reveling in, worshiping the one who has saved you, the one who has redeemed you, living with, laughing with, rejoicing with, worshiping, and even feasting with the one who provided the fullness of forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. We praise you this morning, Lord, that you have forgiven us, those who are in Christ. And Father, I want to pray this morning for that person who's watching at home, in a hotel room, wherever, Lord, that person who is watching, who doesn't know Jesus, has not experienced forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would bring about repentant faith. I pray, Lord, that you bring about salvation even today for them. And I pray for those who are still in that that cycle of sin and shame, thinking, I can't tell anybody about this, even Jesus. I'll never get beyond this. Father, will you comfort their souls? Will you encourage their hearts today? And will you help us to prepare mentally and emotionally to get ready for the return of Jesus and ready to spend eternity with him? Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.